My guest today on Mission Impact is Ria Wong. Mission Impact is a podcast for progressive nonprofit leaders who want to build a better world without becoming a martyr to the cause. I'm Carol Hamilton, your podcast host and nonprofit strategic planning consultant. On this podcast, we explore how to make your organization more effective and innovative. We dig into how to build organizational cultures where your work in the world is aligned with how you work together as board, staff, and other volunteers. And all of this for the purpose of creating greater mission impact. Rhea and I talk about how founders have to shift their thinking if they want their organizations to grow, what rocks and pebbles have to do with nurturing donor relationships, and how accidental fundraisers can build their confidence. Well, welcome, Rhea. Welcome to Mission Impact. Thanks so much, Carol. So fun to be here with you. Yeah, I have to say thank you for back in the day when you actually uh, had me on your podcast uh, before I had started mine. And it was part of what helped me uh, have the courage to step out and and launch my podcast. So thank you for that. I Oh, you're so welcome. I love it. I feel like the more the merrier. We all need good voices out here sharing the knowledge. So awesome. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I like to start out each uh, conversation with uh, what drew you to the work that you do and what would you describe as your why? What what motivates uh, the work that you're that you're focused on? Yeah, so sort of different iterations. So I started as a 26-year-old executive director in New York City. And, you know, of course, at 26, I knew everything, right? But in retrospect, I don't know whose idea it was to hire a 26-year-old. But anyway, uh, and I talk about this a lot, but my first day on the job, I did two Google searches. Google search one was, what does an executive director do? <laughs> and Google search two was, how do you fundraise? Because I was that clueless. And so over the course of 12 and a half years, I and my team built up the organization from 250000 a year to just a little bit under $3 million in private funds in New York City. And, uh, and it was a great ride. And, and I really credit a lot of folks helping me and a really great team. But I also just thought, why did it take me 12 and a half years to figure this out? Like, I'm a smart person. Surely this should be easier. And what I found is that a lot of people have been put in these positions as executive directors or even development directors without ever having received formal training. They, I call them accidental fundraisers. Right. And so in the next iteration of my career, I am doing it for the 26-year-old me that was super clueless. I mean, I Googled, I got meetings with anyone who would meet with me. I sort of cobbled together you know, what I would consider a, an MBA in in fundraising. And um, the truth is the world needs a lot of healing and the folks who are doing the healing don't have time to waste to figure out, like I had to figure out uh, how to fundraise to bring the resources to the work. And so I do what I do because I remember what it feels like to be in a seat and feel such a sense of responsibility and yet feel so clueless and alone in how I'm supposed to do this. Yeah. And, and at least at that point, there was Google for you to tap into, um, folks beforehand, you know, probably were, were flailing around, uh, and, and having less, less easy access to, to ways to learn. But I love that you taking that and really streamlining it. Cause right. Why, why should it take, 
anyone that long to kind of really get good at um, what a, 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 it's a basic function for most nonprofits, yeah. although it's rarely why people go into the field or go in and, you know, or want to do the work that they're doing. Um, you know, it's often around, they want to move a mission forward. They have a, they, there's something that I was talking to somebody yesterday and, you know, she got started because X, Y, Z thing really pissed her off. And those kinds of mm -hmm. things are the things that draw people into the field or have them start organizations or join organizations because they want to make that difference. And yet without money, without funds to, and resources, there, there, there's, you can pursue a mission, but you're just so much more uh, limited in your scope. So really being able to yeah. step into fundraising is so important. So what would you say people, yeah. what are they, what are the first things that they have to learn um, as they're, you know, getting, getting better at fundraising and, and advocating for their cause? Yeah. Um, before I answer that question, can I just respond to Sure, absolutely. Because I think it, it's really important is you're 100% right. And this is usually the curse of the founder. So in, in a sense, I'm, I'm a little bit of a founder as well, but you know, nobody starts a nonprofit because they're excited about fundraising. I totally get that. Right. On the flip side, though, I think people who start nonprofits have to really come to terms with the fact that they are starting a small business. Mm. And a small business does not run without revenue. And so as you are growing an organization, especially if you are the executive director, you have to recognize that you know, what got you here won't get you there, right? Your job is no longer, I, I like to say pet the panda bears. That's just a kind of cheeky way. Like your job is not to pet the panda bears anymore. Your job is to bring in the resources to hire people to pet the panda bears. And where I see a lot of folks stumble, particularly founders, is that they have not upgraded in their own minds what the job is now. Like they mm. realize, they don't realize that the scope of responsibility has changed because they're so connected to this vision and identity of themselves. It's like, well, I'm just the one who pets the panda bears. And so that's where we see a lot of founder syndrome, like people who fail to build an institution around the idea. Um, and so without a clear uh, strategy for revenue, without an institution, you just have a hobby, really. <laughs> and it could be a well-funded hobby, but it's really just a hobby. And so that's for all the folks out there listening, especially the, the founders and the EDs, you are my people and I love you to death, but also you have to run it like a business because it is a business. Anyway, to get to your point though, uh, the question about what are the things that people have to know? Um, I mean, there's so many things, but so I think things, that- right? <laughs> So many things, but you know, one of the most, um, one of the first trainings I do with the folks that I work with is around money mindset. So I think, and you know, Carol, I know you and I spoke about this, but we operate in such a scarcity mindset in the nonprofit sector. Like, oh, well, we can't afford that. And, you know, even the word is is a negative, a nonprofit, right? We don't have enough time. We don't have enough money. We don't have enough staff. We don't have enough. No, we can't, can't, can't. And so what that does is it puts us in a survival mindset. And so when we get into a survival mindset, that's when we get reactive, that's when we get stressed, that's when we get transactional and we treat people like they're walking ATMs. And so the thing that I really want to get across to people that the, is the job is not about chasing people down and extracting money from them. The job is to attract partners and 
inspire them and compel them to give because who they are in the world is intertwined with what you do as an organization and that there's an ever-growing cycle of growth and learning and interconnection. Yeah, I was just talking to someone recently about um, what they termed kind of the ladder of engagement. And and I was actually reflecting on the number of newsletter, you know, email newsletter lists that I'm on for nonprofits. And when I am, um, the number of invitations that I ha- get to donate but how few mm-hmm. invitations I get in a really concrete way of how to get more involved and and volunteer with them so that they, I would actually learn more about the organization. They would learn more about me. To me, to my mind, I probably would also be more motivated to give more versus mm-hmm. the 10th email that they've sent me uh, for donations. So I love that, what you're talking yeah. about, about that interconnection. Well, the other thing too, is I think... <sighs> gosh, how would it even began, but so many nonprofit people have no expertise in marketing, which like, why would you, right? I mean, that's not what the job is, but you know, there's a concept in marketing of a nurture sequence. And what a nurture sequence is, is you're literally nurturing the relationship. And so what I talk about a lot with my nonprofit clients is you have to think of all the communications that you're putting out as pebbles and rocks. Pebbles are the nurture sequence. Pebbles are the stories that you tell. Pebbles are the invitations to come to an event or volunteer or anything that builds trust. The rocks are the actual asks. The thing, the mistake that I see people making all the time is that all they're throwing out are rocks. All they're throwing out are asks without the pebbles of building the trust and nurturing relationship. And fundamentally, trust equals donations. So if you haven't done the hard work of building my trust in you, building my relationship to the organization, you have not earned the right to ask me for a donation because you have not gotten the trust. Yeah. And I, the, the image of people throwing rocks at me is not very inviting. Yeah, that's true. Well, just think about it like a, like a pond, right? Like a big splash. So your, your rocks are like, they make a bigger splash, but you need the little pebbles to like agitate the surface. I don't know if this is the best analogy, but the, the point being that you can't be throwing rocks out all of the time because people get tired of that. And also you haven't, established enough trust. You haven't established a relationship. You are just talking to me as if you're just extracting and like, by the way, 10 emails sent to me to ask me for money does not make it more likely that I'm going to send you money. Right. Right. And uh, no, I, I I haven't necessarily um, responded as they want me to. Um, but yeah, and and probably because it is feeling kind of transactional on my end. Yeah. I mean, I think the other mistake, and I think it's a function of being so deep in this scarcity mindset is that fundraisers, and I get it, fundraisers are getting it from both sides, right? They probably have an ED sitting on top of them or a board sitting on top of them being like, bring in the money. And then you have donors on the other side and, and you're just, you're kind of in the middle. Um, But we so often think about what we want as a nonprofit, you know, I like my fiscal year is this, I want to do this, me, 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 me. It's the rare nonprofit that thinks about the donor. Like, what does the donor want? What is the donor experience? What do they want to achieve with their money, right? Like we all want something in the world, good or bad, right? Like 
maybe I care about the panda bears, or maybe I want to think of myself as the kind of person who is in conservation or whatever it is. But how often do nonprofits actually ask me, like, what do I want to achieve with my money? Like, why would I give to this organization? And how is it aligned with my values and my purpose? And so, you know, I think we as fundraisers need to think of ourselves as facilitators of our donors' experience. Like, we're, you know, sense philanthropic advisors as opposed to, you know, extractors of resources. Yeah, and I love that idea of a facilitator of an experience because that um, that would, you know, if, if someone were thinking about it that way, they'd provide different ways to have experiences with the organization and and not just that one that kind of keeps getting, you know, drum, drum, drum on. Yeah, right. so that, because, that facilitation because... is a really interesting idea. Yeah, I mean, it's like, why? Like, why is Disneyland the happiest place on earth? <laughs> like, it's and they're making money. Make no mistake about it. But I, I would submit that it's because they've really thought about how to make a magical experience. And when you go to Disneyland, you, you're essentially buying an emotional experience, right? You're like, what? Well, fine, go on the rides, whatever. But you're buying awe. You're buying magic in a sense. And I think as nonprofits, we really have to orient ourselves to asking like, what kind of experience, what kind of value are we offering our donor by being a donor with this? And PS, that doesn't mean I get the experience of getting like 10 more emails asking me for money. Like, that's not, that's not why I give money. And like, also, I'm actually, I'm also a pissed off donor. Like when I give to particularly political political campaigns, I'm calling you out. What's the thanks I get for donating? Oh, I get 50 million more people asking me for money because you sold my email address. Like that does not inspire trust and confidence. Amen to that. Amen to that. Where have you seen organizations do do a good job in creating that that experience, maybe that magical experience that you're talking about? Uh, honestly, uh, I don't know that I I can point to an exemplar. Um, let me think. I mean, look. How about good? Let's I, not say best. I mean, Let's say good. Yeah, I mean, you know what? I'm I'm just gonna. Everyone says that I'm just gonna call it Charity Water. Does a great job, and I'll tell you why. So, from a communication standpoint, most nonprofits put too much information on their website. It's very confusing. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do. When you go to Charity Water, it's very clean. It's very straightforward, and they answer three questions: What problem are you solving? Why should I donate to you? So it's about competency and transparency and what's in it for me. And so if you scroll down and it's like, oh, well, you can be part of our, you know, peer-to-peer giving thing. And it's really about building a community around a th- an idea. And so, I mean, I think Charity Water probably does the best job of understanding that they are designing around a donor experience and a donor emotion as opposed to making it about them and about uh, talking about what they need or what they want, because in a sense, it's sort of irrelevant. And like here, I want to be really, really clear because I I know I might get some pushback here from people who are, you know, donor centric versus community centric. 
and I, I'm not going to step into those muddy waters, but fundamentally what I'm advocating is, is being empathy centric, right? We all have stories. We are all the main characters of our own personal movie and there's space for all of it. But if I'm a donor and I don't feel appreciated, if I don't feel uh, like I'm part of a community, if I feel like you're just looking at me like I'm a walking checkbook, I'm going to take my check and go somewhere else. Yeah, actually, as you were talking, I was I was thinking about um, the whole move towards community centric fundraising, which I'll, I'll have to admit I don't know a ton about. Um, but I like that rephrase of kind of empathy centric uh, fundraising. So it's and that can be a- a- empathetic for for any of the um, people involved in the whole experience. Yeah, that's exactly. Right. I mean, I think there are a lot of things that I agree with uh, in community centric fundraising. Like I think, you know, I think that there have been a lot of toxic behaviors in the sector around, you know, treating the donor like they're a savior. Like that's not we, we're not. We don't need saviors. We need partners. But um, the thing that makes me very uncomfortable about community-centric fundraising, and I'm part of you know Slack channels and all that, is there feels like there's an undercurrent of hostility <laughs> towards people who have wealth. And I just want to be really careful that we are not falling into this trope of like, well, rich people are bad and they did bad things to get their money. I mean, the truth is like, most wealthy people in this country are first-generation wealth creators. They're entrepreneurs. They made their money. Um, you know, most of them did not do bad things to get their money. And and yet I think in sort of American society, kind of the, the last great prejudice is against people who are wealthy. Like, you know, we see villains that are wealthy. And I mean, the truth is money is not, Money doesn't change anything. Money is just an amplifier. So if you are a good, generous person with no money, you'll be a even better, more generous person with money. If you were kind of a stingy, miserly person without money, you're probably going to still be a miserly, stingy person with money, right? So I fundamentally believe that money is an amplifier of what's already there. And um, so this went on a weird tangent, but I, I, I would really caution those uh, who are talking about community center fundraising to be careful that we're not demonizing people of wealth. And just for folks, can you just uh, give a brief definition of what community centered fundraising uh, is? Yeah, so it's a it's an interesting model of fundraising. It's coming out of the Pacific Northwest, and it's it's really a reaction to the tradition of donor centric fundraising, which is about you know making the donor the hero of the story and the center of the story and really putting the community at the center of the conversation. I would actually um, nuance it a little bit. I think the work needs to be at the center of the conversation. And I I think of it like um, like stone soup, like everyone has a part to play. Everyone can bring a little something and we create something better together. Uh, and so... You know, and I think in the um, community-centric fundraising world, I think there are a lot of interesting conversations that are happening, particularly among younger philanthropists and what their responsibility and obligation is to 
um, decolonize wealth. Uh, so I think there's a lot of interesting ideas coming out, a lot of which I do agree with. I think the tricky piece for me is that I'd actually never seen it done in practice. So to me, there's a lot of theory behind it. Um, but anyway, if there's anyone out there listening who has seen this done in practice, let me know. I'd be thrilled to talk to you and possibly have you come on my podcast. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there, there are a lot of pieces in that, that where folks are questioning a lot of the kind of you know, uh, I'm struggling, uh, commonly held wisdom about this, that, or the other in the nonprofit sector, which I think is really healthy to, mm -hmm. to, um, you know, critique that and, and look at it and say, how can we do this differently? Um, but I appreciate, uh, we're, we're back to stones and rocks and pebbles, uh, with your stone soup of everyone having a part in it and how can we, mm -hmm. you know, all work together, um, yeah, so, and, and talking about how money is an ampl amplifier, I would say, I, I feel like I've heard, um, power described that way as well, um, that you mm. really, you know, know, really learn about someone's character when they have power. Um, mm -hmm. and it was, it isn't the power necessarily that did it. It's their character that they bring to them that, that level of responsibility that they have. What do you? What would you say helps uh, folks who may be reluctant or accidental fundraiser fundraisers? What What are some things that help them be more successful in stepping into that? You talked about money mindset. Are there other things that folks need to to address as to to become more confident, more comfortable in that role? Well, you can definitely take my course. Uh, so I'm fundraising <laughs> accelerator, but um, you know, I. So, so it's so funny when I started fundraising, uh, I heard this commonly held, you know, um, piece of advice, like, listen for the gift, listen for the gift. And I was like, I don't really know what that means. And the truth is the, giving people the space to talk about themselves and what they want in the world and what they desire and what, you know, and who they are in the world is really important. What's equally as important actually more important is that um, there are really three levels of listening. The first level is I'm listening with an, with an agenda. And unfortunately, that's where most of us reside, right? So I'm listening to you, Carol, but really I'm just like filtering through with my own agenda and for what I want to hear. The second is listening with no agenda. So really just being fully present. And then the third is listening for what's not being said. And I'm going to credit Jason Frizzell for this. I did not come up with this, but I think as a fundraiser, if you are positioning yourself not as an extractor of resources, but as a facilitator of an experience, then I think you kind of calm your lizard brain enough to at least try to get to level two listening. Because at the end of the day, this is a this is a people business. And if people don't like you, if people don't trust you, if people don't feel connected to you, you're probably not going to go very far in this business. You know, and I, as much as I think that people like to put a lot of you know, philosophy and psychology behind it, the truth of the matter is people do business with people that they like. The people that they know, people that they like, people that they trust. And so be the kind of person who is trustworthy. Be the kind of person who's likable. Be the kind of person that people want to spend time with. I mean, it's like pretty basic. 
Yeah, and that what 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 is not being said. So I'm trying to think of how I can put a put a question together that so what's not being said here that you would want to tell people about um a better approach to to fundraising. Well, the idea of what's not being said is actually really really hard to do. It takes a lot of energy. Um and it takes and here I'm going to get a little woo-woo because I'm a Californian. That's just how we are. But it takes quieting the voices in your own head. You know, how often are we really fully present? And so what's not being said, it's you're reading tone, right? Like we communicate a lot with our voices. We communicate a lot with our body language. We communicate a lot with our energy. And so if I'm in a, a meeting with you and your your mouth is saying one thing and your body language is saying another like, do I have the courage to be like, hey, Carol, I'm just, can we just pause for a second? It, it seems to me that, you know, you're saying this and I'm getting something else. Can you tell me what's happening for you? But it takes a, a level of sensitivity and a willingness to step into something outside of the script to have that authentic human conversation. Yeah, that's that's taking a risk, right? Because the um, in in pausing, noticing, asking the person about it, and then I think um, where I when I've done things like that, where I've made the mistake, is that I haven't then just been quiet. Mm, yeah, to yeah. allow them to decide whether they not want to say anything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the like we're so afraid of silence, right? I mean, I I'm I'm guilty as well, but we we like to rush in because like we don't want uncomfortable silence. Um, you know, the other thing too that I would really say, particularly to the new fundraisers out there, is please, 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 please stop the pitch. Ditch the pitch, people. Now, let me nuance that. I think it's important to have a pitch in that you should have the salient points boiled down in a concise way. That part of the pitch, I agree with. The part of the pitch I disagree with is how we teach people, like, you just need to, like, throw that pitch out at people and, like, splatter them with it, right? I mean, I've raised millions of dollars. There's no magical combination of words I'm going to say that is going to convince you to give me a gift. It is, it's a conversation. And so I think the reason why especially young fundraisers rely very heavily on the pitches that they're nervous. And so instead of actually connecting as a human, I'm just going to memorize like these, you know, five slides and exactly what I'm going to say to avoid making a mistake or avoid an uncomfortable situation or avoid being uh, vulnerable myself. I feel like that is something that, that really, it could be applied in so many different situations. I'm thinking of, you know, instances where folks are going to see their legislator or or legislative staff to, and they go in, they've got their talking points and they're going to kind of talk at the person um, or even, you know, someone who's a, some kind of consultant or vendor or whatnot comes in and gives you a pitch on why they're the great ones and you should, um, you know, hire them. And, I think I'm thinking of a situation where uh, I was working in an organization and we were looking to do uh, branding work and we had a couple different firms come in and one came in 
very much with the pitch model. They just, you know, gave us the fancy slide deck and talked at us. The other folks came in, they had nothing, they had no presentation. They spent the time asking us questions, listening, responding, weaving in how they would work with us, but really the the their approach was learning more about us. And I feel like that, or you know, in in sales, in fundraising, in advocacy, all these different arenas where your where your ultimate goal is to try to influence someone. When you come at them hard like that, the the rocks that you were talking about before, it, it's just a turn off, and you know you just stop listening. Uh, but oh yeah, if you come in with questions and and have a conversation with someone and want to know more about them. It's just a totally different feeling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and I would also say with questions, like actually listen to the answer. I mean, I, there you go. I know we say ask questions. <laughs> I mean, I, I have to tell you, Carol, I was once on a podcast. And literally the person had sent me the questions in advance and she just went through the questions, like kind of like a robot. And I was like, I could literally say anything right now and you wouldn't change the cadence of this conversation because in her mind, she was just like going through the questions. And it was very off-putting because like ostensibly though, she was asking questions about me. There was no like there was no connection there you know it was just like okay the next question it was like she was lobbing tennis balls at me I was like okay I the, we're not having a conversation it felt like an interrogation actually right right yeah yeah so there there is there is nuance in that in that um if you're all, and then I think at that point it's probably nerves again and mm-hmm. um wanting to do it right and like let me get through this but the focus is on yourself it's like I can control right. this by asking all these questions versus let me be in this conversation with you, hear what you're saying and respond to it in some appropriate way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have to tell you, I uh, one of the most incredible uh, interactions I had as an executive director is, you know, I met this guy who was very successful, you know, finance guy, whatever, whatever. And I went into the conversation. I was super nervous. I was just thinking about like, okay, you know, basically like, how do I not screw this up? Right. Cause I was like, I feel like I have one shot here. Um, but I decided, and, and, you know, to his credit, he actually helped this along, but we actually had this really connecting conversation. And it wasn't about the nonprofit. It was, it was about how he was on the board of his college and why he was on the board of his college and, you know, how going to this college had meant so much to him. And just like this opportunity to be with another human being and just learn about who he was and 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 put aside my own nerves of like, oh gosh, he's this like super successful finance guy who has so much money, right? And we were just humans and it was an incredible conversation. I came away incredibly energized. Yeah, yeah. So connecting, it, as you said before, it's really a people business. Yeah, And it's all about, yeah. you know, cultivating those relationships. Um, well, I, I think, too, the reason why people get so nervous is it it's all about that scarcity mindset. There's just this belief that, like, this is the last person I'm ever going to talk to who might find our organization or might give us a gift or might give us a donation. Like, the truth is, it's probably not the last person you're ever going to talk to. And not all donations are meant to be yours, right? Like, if I talk to you, Carol... And I tell you about my organization, I learn about what you're interested in. And it turns out that like 
you're really into saving the whales and that's not what we do. My job is not to convince you. My job is to say, Carol, that is wonderful because the world needs people to save whales too. Can I make an introduction to some people who are doing that kind of work? Or at the very least, like, bravo. So glad that you figured that that's the thing that you want to do. And, you know, go forth and do that. So I just think we have to, um, we have to let go of the desperation, you know? So a lot of the times when we go into conversations, like, I need to convince someone to do the thing. That's like, that's like going on a date and convincing someone that we need to get married. I'm like, I don't even know you like that. Like what? <laughs> Stop trying to push a thing. Like maybe it works out. Maybe it's right. Maybe it's not, but we need the space to be able to figure out if we like each other. Yeah. Yeah. It uh, reminds me of um, uh, the small group that I was working with and they were, they were shifting from that all volunteer stage to having staff and, but they were still very much in that scarcity mindset around, about, around board recruitment. And so mm -hmm. it was like each, you know, each new person that they met, they asked them to be on the board. And that's like oh, no. asking oh, someone no. to marry them on the first date. Like, no, you need to get to know this person. They need to get to know you. You need to know whether they're going to show up and do what they say they're going to do. Um, you know, are they interested yeah. in your organization? Lots yeah. of different things. And so what are all those little as pebbles, as you talked about, what are all those little steps that you can provide people to to give have a way in if if it is the right organization and cause and and thing that they're really passionate to contribute to. Yeah, I talk about this a lot, Carol. So I love a dating analogy. As people <laughs> who have listened to me know, it's um, number one. Desperation is a stinky perfume. So I'm I'm married. I've been married for a long time, but I, there was once upon a time I was single, and I would go through these periods where. I couldn't catch a date to save my life. I was just like dry spell, right? And the minute I was in a relationship, everyone wanted my number. And I was like, what's up with that? Like, where were you a month ago? And it was because of the vibe I was putting out, right? Like when you you feel secure, when you feel confident, when you feel um, just sort of in integrity with yourself, like that's very attractive and people want to be part of that. But when you're desperate and you're like, will you go out on a date with me? Will you be my boyfriend? It's like, no, crazy person. I like, calm down. Well, right. As you were talking about the, the other conversation where, you know, you felt like this is my one shot. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah that just, that, like, it just you, even, even just saying that I feel myself kind of tensing up, you know, and, and so yeah, yeah. Versus yeah no one of, wants to be like, yeah, no. Where you're yeah. calm and confident and in your, you know, in your, in your own power. So, yeah. yeah. Just like comfortable in your own skin. Absolutely. Exactly. exactly. We'll be back after this quick break. Mission Impact is sponsored by Grace Social Sector Consulting. Grace Social Sector Consulting helps nonprofits and associations become more strategic and innovative for greater mission impact. You can download free resources on strategic planning, strategic program portfolio review, design thinking, and more at greatsocialsector.com slash resources. And we're back. So at the end of each episode, I like to ask uh, an icebreaker question that I pull out of a box. So I've got one here for you. Um, 
Oh, how yeah, fun. Which, which famous person? Uh, you're, you're in New York. You're in, I think, Southern California right now, maybe. Maybe not Southern California. I am. Yeah, no, what I am. What famous in person right have now. you met? And and any level of fame is fine. <laughs> um. Oh, okay. I'm going to share the story. I hope, I hope this doesn't get back to him. So I am a big Game of Thrones fan. And uh, Peter Dinklage lives on my block so for those of you who don't know it's Tyrion Lannister and I have for the longest time <laughs> tried to befriend him and he is not it's having not it, having it. <laughs> so <laughs> he is not having it I mean so I see him like walking his dog I'm walking my dog I try to be like super cash like oh hey neighbor good morning and he's like not unfriendly he'll say hi but like he's just not trying to be my friend <laughs> so uh i don't know if i could say that i met him i definitely have interacted with him or i tried to have interactions <laughs> at him <laughs> and he is not about that life so uh peter dinklage if you're listening to this i am your neighbor i'm not a weird stalker but we should definitely be friends sounds good and a, and a dog a dog is always a good way to get to know people so what do you ex- Okay, so wait. Okay, wait. Quick story. So he has a dog, and I have a dog. Uh, my dog has passed away, but anyway, I have a dog, and I was like, "Oh, I'm gonna be in. Like, we're we're gonna be dog friends, and then we're gonna see each other on the walk, and then like start chit chatting." But then my my dog decided to have beef with his dog and started like yapping at him, and I was like, "Dog, dog, I I don't ask for anything except for this one thing. You could have gotten me in with Peter Dinklage's dog, and it was a tremendous failure. So, like, then I had to cross the street when I saw him and his dog because my dog was being a jerk. So, sad <laughs> well, you can blame dog. it on your dog. I know. Man. Could have poor, been a poor end. puppy. I know he's a cutie. Or was. I'm sorry. I know. He, he or she. It's okay. He Stevie Wonder. Well, we have a new love, Stella, but Stevie will always hold a special place yes, in our hearts. Absolutely. So, what are you excited about? What's coming up for next for you? What's what's emerging in the work that you're doing? Yeah, good question. So, I, as I mentioned, I uh, have a fundraising accelerator. So, I'm actually promoting my cohort now, uh, and this is ideal for executive directors and development directors who are accidental fundraisers who want to learn how to get out of the transactional into the relational. And what else? I have a book that came out last year, so I'm still kind of out in the world promoting that. Um, What else? I'm doing some speaking and training around the country, so that's a lot of fun. But I continue to have my podcast and my uh, weekly newsletter, so there are lots of ways. If if you want more of this action, there are lots of ways to get it. Definitely. Remind me what the book, book is called. Oh, get that All money, right. honey. I love it. I knew, it was, no I knew it was a good title. Raising I money. knew it was a good title. <laughs> get that money. It's so funny. When I put it out um, to a group of pre-readers, someone responded like, I don't know that you should call it get that money, honey, because as a man, that feels alienating to me. And I was like, I hear your feedback and I respectfully override it. <laughs> That is always our prerogative with feedback, right? It's just information. We don't have to follow it all. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for coming on the podcast. It was great to talk with you. Thanks so much, Carol. It's a lot of fun. I appreciated what Rhea said about cultivating an experience as a fundraiser for the donor. Truly being present in the conversation, putting away the script, and truly listening. Listening for the gift instead of jumping in with your talking points and your pitch. 
the reality is very few people want to be pitched to. They want to have a conversation and know that you're really listening to their answers so they can connect with you as another human being. Thank you for listening to this episode. I do really appreciate the time you spend with me and my guests. You can find out how to connect with Rhea, the full transcript of our conversation, as well as any links and resources mentioned during the show in the show notes at missionimpactpodcast.com slash show notes. I want to thank Isabel Strauss-Riggs for her support in editing and production, as well as Natasha DeVoice of 100 Ninja for her production support. And if you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a colleague or a friend. We always appreciate you helping us get the word out. And until next time, thank you for everything you do to contribute and make an impact.